Hello, and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your temporary host for today, Jason Rosenbaum. Chris McDaniel is on assignment. Joining me today is... Joe Manis. And our very special guest... Blaine Lutkemer. A U.S. congressman from the 3rd District of Missouri. Thank you very much for joining us on this show today. Um, Before we get into kind of your political background and your personal background, tell me a little bit about your district because... It it, spans a lot of territory. It's a pretty expansive district from what I know. Yeah, I was redistricting in 2012 as a result of the census. Missouri lost a congressman, and we had a lot of significant changes. And so my district now encompasses uh, Lincoln County, most of St. Charles County. Warren Franklin uh, picks up about a third, a half of uh, Jefferson County, and then right. all the way back to central Missouri, which is uh, Jefferson City, Lake of the Ozarks, uh, as the western edge of it. And that's, in fact, where I live. Uh, it basically goes uh, right down the Missouri River, one county wide, and gets to central Missouri and gets a couple counties wide. Now but you, uh, it's, it's very lengthy, and uh, obviously, though, the same number of people in the district as all the rest of them. That's yes. constitutionally the way it has to be. Now, as you just mentioned, you are a, a resident of St. Elizabeth, which is in Miller County. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and why and how you got involved in Missouri politics. Well, I'd always been involved in a lot of uh, Community activities, uh, served on lots of the boards in locally, uh, county, and a couple state board association folks, uh, Missouri Banker Association, what have you, because I'm in the, in the banking business for a while. And, um, you know, I raised a lot of hogs and cattle growing up, uh, went to college and got a degree, and uh, and, and then came out and, and uh, was a bank examiner for a couple of years, got in the banking insurance business as well, and uh, waited till my kids were basically out of high school before I got involved in the political world as a state rep. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we served as uh, uh, the director of tourism for a couple of years. And then after that, we were asked to serve in Congress. And here we are. Why did you get involved in politics? I mean, why did you get decide to be a state rep in the beginning? There must have been some issue or something that prompted you to decide you needed to do that. No, I think it's just a desire to serve the public. And okay. you think you, you can help make a, a difference in, in the lives of people. Uh, I'm not a single-issue candidate. I don't have one burning desire to solve the world's problem on one particular issue because I think anybody that goes into politics with just a single issue that they're trying to uh, change or support or do something with is going to be very disappointed because when they get there, they're going to realize that you've got to be more rounded than that. You have a lot of other issues you're going to have to be able to address. Uh, you're going to, you know, constituents, uh, 90% are not going to care about your particular issue. They're going to care about their issues. And so you as a state representative or a senator or a congressman or whatever are going to have to realize and, uh, that you have to work on all these other issues to be uh, relevant, to be pertinent, to be able to do your job. And so uh, when I got there, I was aware that I was going to be more multifaceted and understand a wide variety of issues. But I think that the job is such that you work on all these issues for the betterment of uh, the people you serve and the state that you serve, and uh, now in this situation with the Congress, uh, the nation we serve. Now, you were involved in one of, I feel, the, one of the more memorable congressional primaries in recent memory. But before we get into that, you actually before then ran for state treasurer in 2004. And the reason I mention this is not to dredge up bad memories because you <laughs> did not win that, but – it, a couple of good things came out of that. <clears throat> One, as I was jokingly mentioning before the break, uh, my good friend Tony Luke-Demeyer used some of your signs to win the MSA election. But you are kind of part of this bumper crop of Missouri political figures who lost a statewide election and then later came back and maybe used that experience to win an election a few years later. In your case, it was, was Congress. Um, after losing the state treasurer primary, Claire McCaskill lost the governorship before she won U.S. Senate. Uh, Jane Nixon lost a U.S. Senate race a couple times before he right. became governor. 
do you think that that race in 2004 kind of helped you maneuver through the, the zany Mo Nine primary in 2008, or do you think it was other things that kind of got you over the top in that race? Well, I think it gives you a sense of the, the level of, ca- of campaign you have to run to be able to uh, win at, at the level that we're at. I think also, uh, having run statewide, you build a network, and I think even my opponent, whenever we were talking after the race, said, you know, complimented us and said we'd run one of the finest grassroots campaigns they'd ever seen. And uh, you know, we obviously didn't win, but I think uh, we set the stage for uh, the 08 race whenever we were able to network back with all the different people from all across uh, what turned out to be the 9th District. Uh, I also was the uh, 9th Congressional District Republican chairman, so I was Kenny's chairman for the entire district. So I had a lot of uh, networking ability. I was a state rep. I'd also uh, been part of the leadership team that helped recruit some of the candidates that won mm-hmm. in uh, 03. And uh, as a result, uh, had a lot of uh, name ID, cord- uh, the, the network built up there that could actually be effective for us. And we built on that when we built our campaign for the uh, the 08 um, uh, congressional now, race. Now, let's kind of set the stage because a lot of our listeners may not know how how – uh, whirly burly this primary was. So in 2008, yeah, he's smiling when I say the now, word Now, first, I want to interject something, yes. too. Uh, the, the congressman is now one of two <clears throat> members of the Missouri congressional delegation, but he was the first, who went from the state house to the U.S. house. And that's very unusual. I mean, from, for someone to be a state rep and then go there were, I mean, Sam Graves was in the state house, and so was Lacey Clay, but they were state right. senators. Right. And, correct, correct. But, but yes. So in 2008, Kenny Holsoff decides to run for governor after Matt Blunt decided not to. And that opened up the 9th District, which had previously been a pretty safe Republican seat, but had Democratic <laughs> history to it. Harold Volkmer was um, Holsoff's uh, predecessor, and there were Democratic predecessors before then. And in your case, there were there were four other people in this primary. One was kind of an also-ran opponent named James Bashir, I think, who I never actually met. There was Brock Olivo, the football player, who we all know and love. Danny Moore, a, uh, a state rep from Bolton. But your main opponent was Bob Onder, who is a, a state rep from St. Charles. And um, probably your most, uh, most uh, serious opponent in that race. And on the other side... You had Judy Baker, state rep, Ken Jacob, a former state senator, Steve Gaw, former Speaker of the House, and Lyndon Bodie, uh, Marion County presiding commissioner. So now that was kind of a verbose explanation right. of what and happened Right, and the 9th District, at, which no longer exists, uh, spanned roughly from Columbia all the way up north to the border, took in Hannibal. I mean, take, it was a rather... Uh, expansive district, actually from Lake the Ozarks, right, yeah. right, to right, Lake right, St. Louis, right. and all the way to Iowa. Yeah. So, right. So, so I mean, it's expansive district. <clears throat> so yeah. that was, I mean, out of out of all your congressional campaigns, that was by far the most active. All your other congressional campaigns, you've either had not had Democratic opponents or they've been pretty weak ones. What was it like running in that campaign, and what was it kind of like when, especially when it got a lot of national attention and national people kind of got involved, both for and against you in that contest? Obviously, you know, the, the, the national attention was something that we couldn't coordinate, so therefore you didn't know whether they were going to come in or not. And so you were hoping that you'd get some help. But uh, we got outspent by a million, million dollars total in the race and still managed to wow. win. Um, but it was, it was uh, you know, the primary was difficult because uh, I knew most of those folks in the primary. They're good friends. And you never want to go uh, run against your friends, but... Um, 
I had some people come to me and say, you know, we've got a lot of good people in the race plane, but I'm not sure they can actually win the primer, win the general, because you could see a wave coming from the uh, the Obama campaign was going to really, uh, you know, there, w- there was a lot of negativism toward uh, Republicans as a result of the Bush years, and Obama was a very electric candidate. He was really he really energized the people. And uh, as a result, they were concerned we were going to lose the race, that seat altogether. And so they came and recruited me, and and um, I said yes. And uh, it was um, it was a it was a meat grinder. I'm telling you, it was uh, really difficult because you ran against uh, your friends to win the primary, and then the general. You know, they threw everything at us but the kitchen sink. Yeah, we were able to catch a couple of the media folks in Columbia who actually made stuff up. And uh, we challenged them on it, and they had to, uh, you know, uh, go back and and uh, have to withdraw some of their comments and admitted that they had done these things. And uh, some of it wound up in a commercial, which they had the commercial eventually pulled. So, and I told my wife and, and family whenever we were deciding whether to run or not, I, I asked them, I said, you know, can you really stand what's going to happen in this race? Because I'm a really boring person. I really, my background is really, is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, you know, vanilla. And I said, so they're going to have to, you know, there's nothing in my background to go after, so they're going to have to find something. And if they can't find anything with our legislative record, they're going to have to make something up on me. And so that's what they did. And, boy, they said, oh, yeah, we can handle it, Dad. Sure, we can handle it. And lo and behold, the first commercial comes out where they make some stuff up. <laughs> and, my, and my daughter and my dad, they went ballistic. They just went nuts. And I said, look, I told you this is going to happen. So we just have to fight back. You know, we have a lot of good people who know me. They know who we are, know what kind of person we are. And uh, we've got to believe that they're going to go out there and tell people this isn't true. What they're saying is made up. And so we fought it on two fronts from the standpoint. Our network of friends and, and supporters fought it on the ground, and we fought it by going back to the people who cut the commercials and made the statements in the paper. Yeah. They were incorrect and got them pulled. Did you feel like when it became kind of a race <coughs> where the DCCC got involved and the RNCC got involved, did you feel like you kind of lost control of your campaign? Did they the t- message? Did they, did they feel like the national people were kind of controlling that campaign, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side? Or did you feel that you still were able to get your message across No, yourself. we really were still in control of the standpoint that, and I'll give you, I'll give you two quick examples. Sure. In the northern half of the district, um, it was in September because a little bit before whenever the national folks got in, but we were, at, we were down seven points and didn't realize that our opponent had gone up already on the radio. And coming from rural Missouri, I understand that that's a time of year when the farmers are in their combines combining their wheat and beans, and especially in the northern Missouri. And I said, I know that the important issue in the northern half of my district is, is uh, guns and babies. And I said, we're going to go up with an ad on guns and babies and, and stick it on the radio for three weeks, see what happens. And so we went from seven down to seven up in three weeks just by running that, that ad on, on gun rights and, and abortion rights. And, uh, you know, that's an area that, quite frankly, uh, people identify more with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, but they're very conservative up there. Yeah. And those are big issues for those people. So you're saying you're down seven points in the general or in the primary? No, in the general. In the general. In the general. So what he's saying in three yeah. weeks by, by running a, a pro-gun, anti-abortion ad, you were able yeah. to go – Gain, I mean, change 14 points in three weeks. In three so, weeks, yeah. So, so yeah. follow up, if I may. Yes. Uh, to your point, though, the national guys were, were at, you know, coming probably middle of, uh, end of, end of uh, September, first part of October, yes. they started coming in. But what happened, uh, a turning point in the campaign is actually one that we made, I think. And my opponent, we found out they were going to go dark in St. Louis on the broadcast TV. And there's a huge swath of, in the corner of my district, about a uh, 25%, 30% of my, my district at that time was in the St. Charles, in the St. Charles uh, Franklin, Warren, uh, Montgomery area. 
And uh, they went dark for a week, and I said, all right, this is our chance. And so this is our dagger in the heart. So we went up 1,000 points that week, our own money. It wasn't them, but it was us. Went up 1,000 points for a week, and that just that was it. That was a dagger in the heart. We won this area by over 15,000. Yeah. Was and there a particular message with those 1,000 points? No, it was, it was just hammering uh, the message that we'd had the last three weeks of the campaign. And yeah. so it, there was no message in particular uh, that we thought would be different than what we had been doing. It's just that uh, because they were not there to answer what we were saying, we were able to go up for a week unchallenged, and, um, you know, they, they just dropped off the map at that point. And we, so, we went about 15,000 votes up on that end of the district as a result of the, that. So the result was that you beat Judy Baker, <laughs> I believe, by three percentage points. And I remember being in Columbia that night when I was actually at the Democratic headquarters, and they were obviously very happy about Obama winning and, you know, Jay Nixon winning and whatnot. But then um, I could sense there was kind of a, you know, a, the, the enthusiasm kind of got – zapped a little bit when they found out that you had won and that uh, Kurt Schaefer had beat Chuck Graham in one of the bigger upsets in Boone County history. And I believe you two were actually having a victory party at the same place. Mm-hmm. And what, 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 did it, what did it kind of feel like? It was, I mean, it seemed like it was kind of a life-changing experience winning that race and becoming a congressman. What's it kind of been like at, from that moment up until this point being in Congress? Well, obviously, it's a great honor to be able to go to Washington and serve our, 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 you know, not only our district and our state, but to serve the nation. I mean, most of the issues are no longer district-specific anymore. I mean, they're, they're more uh, state or mostly national in scope. So as a result, uh, you have to look at things just a little bit differently in that regard. But, you know, it, it's, it's been a it's, – it's, it's just a tremendous amount of work. Uh, you have to be uh, – you know, the, the, the issues are probably tenfold more – uh, in number as well as probably in importance from the standpoint of what you're working on. So it's just an, an inter- a completely different job than being a state rep or state senator. I know you're on the Financial Services Committee, but there's a variety of issues that you've been involved in. What do you see as the top two or three issues that you've been involved in since you've been in Congress, the things that you really move you and that you've really f- tried to make a difference? Well, I think, you know, the the financial services stuff obviously is something I have an interest in, a background in. Uh, you know, one of the things that we're working on right now is the Common Core stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a in, – in 2011, prior to that, the parent was in charge of the information but uh, of, of the child at school. And now, as a result of the 2011 <coughs> law that was part of Common Core, the schools now is in charge of the information with regards to the – uh, whether they can be uh, given out or not. And so as a result, that's something we've been working on. Um, you know, we've kind of become the um, de facto expert on river issues uh-huh. because of I had the Mississippi River all the way from Iowa to St. Louis and had half the Missouri across the state. And so as a result, we had three different core uh, agencies to work with, our, our regional uh, folks to work with. And now with the new district, I still have two. But, um, again, the river issues are very, very important, and we work with the Corps a lot and a lot of the, the stakeholder groups. I am the vice president of the Mississippi River Valley Flood Association, which is a group from St. Louis down to the mouth of the Mississippi, um, uh, mostly made up of levee districts and, and uh, state and local officials. And uh, their goal is to maintain adequate 
uh, levy funding and uh, flood control to make sure they don't lose the, what's behind it. And so we're we're involved in a myriad of issues. And I, I you know, we start picking one out. Why well, pretty soon two to four others will pop up here, so I can spend the rest yeah. of the afternoon talking about it. But it, you know, every 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 issue is important. Uh, one of the things that we were able to do is. You know, a lot of pe- people don't realize is we were the ones who led the charge on the child farm labor rule. The mm-hmm. Department of Labor tried to uh, issue a rule that said was so restrictive that if you'd had a 14-year-old child that wanted to cut the neighbor's grass with a riding lawnmower, you wouldn't be able to do it because the rule was so restrictive. And so we were able to push back on that and stop that nonsense. And we fought um, a fiduciary rule proposed by the Department of Labor, which they're going back through right now and trying to reauthorize it again. But we did this about two years ago, which would make it so restrictive that you probably wouldn't be able to have IRAs marketed because of the way uh, the fiduciary liability that you would wind up with as a result of this rule. So uh, a lot of things that we do, we push back on a lot of agencies. You know, another another thing that to me is really important, nobody ever knows about it, is that we, we save the technical career center folks in the state of Missouri. How so? Um, we're one of we're only one of uh, 50 states that allow for our uh, schools to report on a um, um, on a cash basis, mm-hmm. and the federal government on one report wants you to to apply to uh, to report on an accrual basis. Well, this one report happens to affect our career centers, and they were going to have to spend anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars to get their uh, their books fixed up differently, and probably a thousand to two thousand dollars per year after that to be able to file this report correctly. And so we had 32 career centers in the state, and a couple of them said, okay, no problem. And a couple other ones said, well, you know, we'll change over the course of time. But you wound up with 25 of them that said, you know what, if we do this, we're going to close our doors mm-hmm. because we get so much money from the federal government, and we have to file this report, and the money stops. Uh, we, can't, we can't afford to do this any longer. So they came to us and said, can you help us? And so we took 14 months to fight the Department of Education. And in doing that, uh, finally they just they got tired of putting up with us. I mean, I'm, I'm an old Dutchman from central <laughs> Missouri, hard-headed. And if I get something in my head, I'm going. I'm just don't give up. I mean, I just we just don't quit. And so we had him in our in our office one day, and I told him, I said, "Look, this is a very very important issue to to the people of my state, to the educational community of my state, and I'm not going to give in on this. You gave this. We have to every year have an exemption to be able to continue to do this, and you've given this for the last 14 years, and so there's no reason for to do it now other than just trying to be obstinate about it. There's nothing changed, so we need that exemption for another year, two years, or from now on." And so we argued around there and finally just said, they threw their hands up and said, you got it. We're tired of arguing about it. And so as long as our schools now comply with all the other rules and don't get themselves in trouble, they will be able to continue to file a support on a cash basis and saved 25 schools from going out of business. And just to give you an idea how important, one more question, how important career centers are, they educate about 500 nurses a year mm-hmm. come out of the, this. That's how important saving our, our career centers was. So uh, that's just one, one field, that the, but it's, they're a very, very important part of our educational system here in the state. And, and again, I don't serve on a committee uh, that oversees this, but it was something that was brought to me that I thought was so important that we, we spent our time and energies to, to do something. Now, you've also been a pretty outspoken critic of the Affordable <clears throat> Care Act, and you also have been you know, a major player in some of the uh, pushback between the Republican-led House and the Democratic-led Senate. Do you want to talk a bit about that? I mean, A, your stance as far as how you think the Affordable Care Act may play going into the fall elections and sort of how you see the relationship right now between the um, House and Senate. 
Because it seems like, as we were kind of talking about before, like the House passes a bunch of stuff and it goes down this bottomless hole in the Democratic Senate. It doesn't seem like the two are in sync very much. Is that kind of your your sense as well? Well, yeah. I mean, they're, obviously, they're they're occupied uh, leadership-wise by different parties. Uh, so therefore, you automatically have some differences right there. Uh, also, um, you know, ideologically, that it, it's it's just not not working and and. You know, right now the Senate is trying to defend all the president's policies, and including the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. And, uh, you know, we've sent I don't know how many, 40-some different bills over there that yes. will repeal, extend, waive, uh, change parts of or all of the, the health care bill. And so uh, we've been supporting those. I, I really don't think this is the way that we need to fix our health care system. I acknowledge that the health care system had some problems, but I don't think scrapping it and, and, and basically, if we remember, this – this health care law was nothing more than a stopgap measure to get to single payer. That's what this is all about. And the president wanted to go from what we had to a single payer system, and this is the interim step. And uh, I, just, I just don't think that we need to go to a single payer, and I don't like where we're at with this because I'd rather have the individual and the, and the doctor in charge of your health care rather than the federal government or an insurance company. And this is where the president wants to go, and I just disagree with that philosophically. Um, so, and I think I think it, it bears out that the, the people are going to have better care. It's going to be cheaper, and uh, you're going to wind up with uh, less cost as a system as a whole if uh, you go this other route. And so, our challenge as Republicans is to find an alternative plan to what the president has. And we have a couple of different ones out there. What we're probably going to do here in the next couple of months is coalesce behind a single plan. I think there's three right now that our caucus yeah. has actually got, but we're going to coalesce behind a single plan and use that as our a uh, plan that we want to uh, show as our alternative to the the president's plan, and then uh, continue to beat the drum on this. Because at the end of the day, this this plan, uh, quite frankly, I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. Now, now, but now you know, the pushback from the Democrats are right. going to be when you talk about repeal is they point to a bunch of things within the law that are attractive to people, whether it be pre-existing conditions, whether it be keeping your kids on their keeping on your, your kids on that, or just the general idea that more people may get access to health insurance. Um, I'm sure that's going to be kind of a message from the Democrats, maybe not toward you, as we'll get into in a minute, but toward competitive races. How would you kind of respond to that line of argumentation? Well, I don't think they've got a, a leg to stand on when it comes to access to care from the standpoint that Obamacare has uh, already been shown that it's going to dislocate uh, thousands and thousands, millions and millions of people from the standpoint of being able to have care. I mean, the numbers are phenomenal. Uh, you're looking at between two and a half and three million people that are going to be without care who had it to begin with. Now, so, you mean pe- pe- people <clears throat> who were lost or who, who have care now but will lose it as a result of an employer uh, saying they no longer will provide health care to you and you can't you can't um, get care anymore because you don't have enough of a job to pay for it. I'm going to give you a quick example. Okay. I've got, a, got an employer who manages four hotels, 800 people, um, excuse me, 700 people, 80% of them full-time, 20% part-time with the advent of this. And he's gonna, it's going to cost him a million and a half dollars extra to, com- to be able to keep his people fully fully covered. Well, to get around this, he's just going to drop his numbers down to 80, 20 the other way, 80% part-time, 20% full-time. So now you've got 400 people that no longer not only have health care, but they've got a part-time job and can't afford health care. So this is what's happening across the nation. Now, that being said, the, the president's giving waivers and extensions on some of the, the, uh, the different employers. But a lot of this is already in place from the standpoint that the employer had to uh, begin January 1, began to count his people toward next January, being able to qualify or not qualify, uh, be able to find or not find for whether he had a plan or not have a plan. 
the president still has anything with individual mandate uh, for those people under that. And so it's and, – and I think the 800-pound the gorilla in the room on this is yet to come, which are the Medicare and the Medicaid individuals. Yeah. The and Medicare folks, basically the doctors usually break even on Medicare, but this plan took $716 billion out of Medicare. And go talk to your doctor and ask him if he's very happy – I got. A, I got. I had. A, I was at an event uh, Friday night, and a doctor came up to me and said, "Hey, what's going on? My payments for Medicare are, are been whacked significantly." I said, "Yeah, they've been whacked significantly. Significantly. That's because the health care bill look, took seven hundred sixteen billion dollars out, and you're going to now not get paid at enough to be able to keep these people uh, and break even on them. So now you're going to lose money, like they've been losing money on Medicaid individuals. And so, <clears throat> not only are the the people on, on Medicare going to wind up." With uh, having to pay more, you're going to wind up with fewer doctors wanting to be able to take you. So you're going to lose. That's an access problem. Um, the Medicaid people, a lot of them rushed onto the Medicaid rolls, thinking, "Oh, we'll get on the Medicaid rolls and we'll get our coverage that way." That's fine. The only problem is the doctors lose significantly amount of uh, significant amount of money on that as well, and have already restricted their practices on Medicaid folks, and will restrict it even further as a result of more people on Medicaid. So the people on Medicare and Medicaid, by the end of the summer, they all will have cycled through their doctors two or three times, found out what a bad deal it really is. You talk about a mess. This is a this is a meteorite getting ready to hit our health care system so, and our economy. Right. So, so but, most but Paul Ryan's budget <clears throat> proposal to balance the budget included the same $700 million cut. So how does the GOP counter that when most of the balanced budget proposals include that same cut or more as far as on the Medicare side? How do you... On the Medicare side, he, he at the age 55, you get to choose what you want to do. And as a result, uh, those folks back in those years are able to allow the existing Medicare folks to continue with the existing plan at 55 and under. But he did, do the, but he did keep that cut in is my point. It can be done, but you can't okay. do it the way the president's doing it. Okay. Well, well that's what I'm asking. I mean, yeah. do you feel like the proposals, the, re, the Republican proposals that you'll be coalescing behind will be able to have the <clears> savings, <throat> with, but, a, but, a, but a different way? Yes. yes. Ryan's plan is not part of our health care plan. That's not in what the health care plan will be. None of our health care plans incorporate his plan into, the, into them. A lot of them incorporate a couple of things that you said about mm-hmm. uh, portability, about pre-existing conditions. There's three or four good things in, in the health care plan of the president, and that's about it. And we've included three or four of those things. But we've also included things like uh, you know, malpractice uh, re- reform, tort reform. Um, you've also got pooling in there. You've also got um, high-risk pools, which uh, health savings accounts. All of these things work, have been proven to save money, uh, uh, give people choices, uh, allow the individual to have responsibility for his own decisions on his own care. And we want to put those things back in there. But health care savings are very effective about saving money and giving choice to the individual, and they work, and yet they were, they were, they were something that the, the president's care, uh, plan took out. High-risk pools are a really good way to actually save money from the standpoint that you put the folks who can't get insurance into this pool. You subsidize those. They're the ones who need the coverage, and it minimizes the increased in cost of insurance on the rest of the folks. It really works. I, when I was in the state house in Missouri, I worked for a long time on trying to revamp our pool. And, in fact, Missouri was the last high-risk pool in the country to get revamped. Now, um, even if the Senate switches to Republican control <clears throat> in the fall, we don't know if it will, but there's predictions that it very very well may as of 2015, you still would have the president who would veto any of this 
So how do you get, I mean, how do you see some of this getting into effect? Or is this something that's a fight that you start now knowing that it may be 2017 before you can get anywhere? And that's assuming a Republican gets in the White House. Well, I think you, I think there's two approaches. I think you've, you've just, uh, just mentioned them both here. I think one is you do your job, which is to find solutions to the problems that we have and put together bills that will address those problems and then drop them on the president's desk and it's up to him to say yes or no on them. And if he says no, well, then the next election we can say, look, we've got plans. We've got solutions. We've already passed them. We're laying, they're laying on the president's desk that can solve our health care situation and, and change us, put us in a different direction where the patient and doctors in charge of your care instead of the federal government. And if the president wants to try and salvage something here, because right now, you know, he's having to extend and waive and, and you know, give exemptions to all sorts of things to be able to keep this thing afloat. It's going to. It would implode on its own if he wouldn't do that. But he, by doing what he's doing, he's allowing it to continue for a while. And he's, I think he's, what he's doing is waiting until after the, the fall elections, and then he'll make some sort of decision at that time whether he's actually going to scrap it or not. And what he really wants to do, if we would lose the House and Senate both, he would go to a, to a single-payer system within 90 days. I, I would bet everything that that's what he would do because that's where he's at. Now, before we get into your incredible re-election campaign, I do want to talk about wood-burning stoves <laughs> because – I read an article about this in the Associated Press, <clears throat> and it, it's become a really big source of controversy. So kind of just explain what I'm babbling about right now. On wood for heating devices. Yes. Okay, the uh, EPA and in their infinite wisdom, uh, they are presently in control of the emissions that come from electrical coal-fired plants, and now they want to take those same emission standards and apply them to your wood heating device. Yeah. And uh, – uh, right now, they're going to start with the outdoor wood furnaces, but they're going to go to the other ones on the inside. You can just see it coming. I mean, anybody who knows how this group operates, that's just the next step. And then after that, who knows? They may try to regulate your campfire. Um, who knows? But, you know, what we've, I've, I've done is take the lead on this issue from the standpoint. We're working with the industry right now to say, hey, where can we go on this? How can there's we? A, wait, wait. There's a wood heating stove industry? Sure. Oh, okay. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, there I'm sure is. there is. But I mean, if they're making you, the stones, you mean an association? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, I'd interrupt, but continue. Yeah, there's an association of companies that produce wood wood heating devices, yes. whether it's uh, an outdoor wood furnace mm-hmm. or an indoor wood furnace or an indoor wood stove. Uh, you know, uh, you have fireplace inserts that go in that heat that utilize heat that have little heating systems. I've got one in my house, matter of fact. And oh, so, okay. And so, all these different wood heating devices can be and will be affected at some point if you let EPA continue down this road. And so, what we're trying to do is is uh, do a little preventative problem here, or, so that we can get uh, keep these folks in business and keep the minimize and minimize the cost to mm-hmm. our uh, our constituents and allow them continue to burn burn what sure. is a very cheap fuel a uh, fuel, and also you know I have to realize that a lot of these folks by doing what they're doing they're cleaning up a lot of the woods uh, that uh, the trees that are dead that fall down mm-hmm. and as a result you you manage your forests better. You know, this is one of the things that if you talk to – I'm working on this problem right now too with the, what's going on in the Mark Twain forest with our, our, um, our forestry folks. I mean, they're, they are – because they have mismanaged our forest, there's so much dead stuff on the floor of the forest that they're having to go through with controlled burns. And so as a result of that, they're winding up actually burning some good timber, mm-hmm. which we've got a – it's a whole other issue. But get back to the wood stoves and wood furnaces. Uh, you know, this this is not this is a basic way of heating your home. 
Um, you know, they're built with safety standards, uh, and now we have to put emission standards, which could be very, very expensive and um, make these things to the point where they may not be affordable for some folks. So we're fighting that issue as well. Do you think you'll be successful? I think we will. I think at some point we're going to get a lot of folks to support this. This is this is madness what these people are doing. Um, you know, this is similar to what happened with the, uh, the the water issue out in the far west, out in California, where because of an endangered fish, they wound up flooding a river with all their drinking water and, and water going to be used for their city. And now they don't have any water, and the cities are going to go dry. And so we passed a bill the other day. I think this is a similar issue. We can just say, hey, look, this is how – this goes back to the basic way we used to heat in our homes and, and for – you know, since we were the pilgrims came over here and helped, uh, you know, built our first log cabins. We've been building building fires in our homes. Uh, this is this is silly. Yeah. Now, um, with all this, there's been <coughs> speculation, particularly the last couple of years and more recently, last few months, on what you're whether or not you plan on staying in the house. Or there's been a lot of Republicans who've been encouraging you to look at running for governor in 2016. Or uh, there'll be, I mean, there'll be Senate contests. Uh, against Claire McCaskill in 2018. Uh, what's your thoughts as far as your own political future? You're not that old. Um, what's your? Th- <laughs> that depends. What are you? Well, let's put uh, it this way: you're you're a few months younger than me. Okay. <laughs> but is that? I mean, do you have any desire to run statewide in the next couple of years? You know, I I really was not looking to run for this position, and they came knocking on my door. And so uh, I have a race here this fall that we're focused on. And so we're going to focus on that one. And if things open up down the road for something else, we take a look at it. But I'm not going to, you know, at this point, I like what I'm doing. We're, we're happy where we're at. Uh, we've got a race we've got to focus on here this fall. And after that, who knows? Now, before we get back, let's, let's talk about this race for a second. Because as many people who follow Missouri <laughs> politics know, the congressional elections here are not usually that exciting anymore. Many of the districts are pretty safe for either Republicans or Democrats, and usually we don't give them a second thought. But in your case, we're making an exception, mainly because of the people who have filed against you in both the Republican and the Democratic primary. (laughs) In this instance, Leonard Steinman, who is somehow of a meme in Missouri politics for his Santa Claus-like beard and his propensity to run in pretty much every race known to man has filed against you in the Republican primary. Normally, that wouldn't be a big deal. Leonard Steinman running against you is kind of like the wind blowing in the fall. You know, it happens. But his wife, Velma Steinman, has has filed to run as a Democrat. There was even a huge article about this in the Jefferson City newspaper of a Steinman versus Steinman matchup, potentially, if Leonard Steinman somehow manages to beat an incumbent congressman by spending no money. So with that humorous explanation aside, what do you make of this zany situation? And do you think that there could be national attention on this race simply because two people who are married to each other are running against each other in your, in your well, district? Well, actually, they're running against him. Running against you, basically. Right. Well, you know, obviously, it's uh, the way our election laws are. For 100 bucks, you can, you can walk into the Secretary of State's office, sign your, your name on the right, right <laughs> line, and, and you can run. And so they've chosen to do that. There's another in, individual in the race, so I do. And we've got till next Tuesday uh, before the filing deadline is over with, and so we may get some more folks there. So 
you know, I, I can't focus on those folks. I've got to continue to focus on my race and on what we're doing in, in D.C. and the constituent services we try to provide, and uh, that's where we're at. Would you participate in a debate that features all the candidates, including both diamonds? <laughs> I'm not sure how that would be structured. Uh, I mean, it could be similar to the debate <clears throat> at, uh, at Truman State a few years ago. I mean, maybe they could ask who their favorite founding fathers were or something <laughs> like that. Uh, for, for Mo Nine people, you know exactly what I'm talking Ronald about. <laughs> okay. You know exactly. But, but kind of going back to what, what Joe was talking about before, um, you know, I, I mean, 2016 is going to be a big year for Republicans in the state. We had Catherine Hannaway on last week who's running for governor. Who knows? Maybe you'll be in that gubernatorial contest. People have to learn how to spell your name. L-U-E-T-K-E-M-E-Y-E-R. Did that with no paper, by the way. What do you see the prospects for the Republicans in 2016, and do you see yourself as a part of that? Well, I think we'll be a part of it from the standpoint that, uh, you know, I, I would I still enjoy the job. And as long as my health is good, I, I would con- anticipate I'll be running again. Uh, and we're going to continue to help whoever the ticket is. Uh, you know, I, I have been, if you've listened to me or been around me very much or heard me speak very much, you know, and I'm, I continually talk about uh, one of the problems that we have as a party is that we're divided. And that uh, right now is an opportunity for us as a party to win a lot of statewide as well as national races as long as we stay unified. And so I continue to preach this message of unity from the standpoint that I believe that our country is in danger. I see uh, this president taking us down a road that we don't need to go down and endangering our future. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, uh, this, is a, this is a very impactful time. And uh, if we as Republicans stand and on the sidelines and nip and hard each other's heels instead of uniting and trying to elect candidates, uh, whoever a candidate is, uh, I think uh, we have nobody to blame but ourselves if we lose our country. So I, I am – you know, continually talking with lots of different candidates and lots of different folks trying to get everybody to, to continue to support our ticket. Because I think we, are the, as Republicans, represent the ideals and principles that most people uh, espouse and believe in. Uh, I, think they, I think we represent the, the ethics of, uh, of the country and how our country was founded. And uh, I think our set of principles and values are easy to sell because they resonate with the with the general public and the voting folks, and uh, we just have to do a better job of messaging. We as Republicans are lousy at messaging, uh, and we've got to do a better job of that. And I think we can do that if we can articulate a message, for instance, on the health care bill where we have an alternative. Say, look, this is not the way you want to go. We want to go back to a patient-centered, uh, a doctor-centered uh, system of, of health care. Uh, that will resonate with the people if you've got a plan that works. Why? Yeah. So I think we'll be engaged and involved, and uh, we're going to continue to be um, uh, as much as we can. I, I uh, also like to uh, support my local state rep, state senate candidates. Uh, to me, um, uh, you know, it's important to support all those folks as well. One quick question before we go. Are you going to get involved in the second district senatorial race? Could we see you endorse Bob Onder potentially? Well, I, I will be more than happy to uh, support, and we're going to work for the candidate who comes out of that race. Oh. But uh, we're not going to get in the middle of a primary. We, uh, Th- we That would have made awesome imagery if you got behind your former <laughs> opponent. But you're going to have to fight it out in that. But anyways, um, I'm getting the sense that we're out of time here. So I want to thank you very much for, for coming in today. It was a blast uh, from the past and the present. So to, to close us out, you can find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me at Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And, and you're actually one of the last Missouri congressmen to join Twitter. You're, you're at... 
Blaine Press, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. That's correct. And congratulations on that, by the way. And thank you for being on the show. My uh, pleasure. Until next week, so long. So long.